essentially everybody was fobbed off by the system. So if you have symptoms that persist, whatever they are, they were fobbed off at the level of the receptionist in a general practice, unable to get a GP appointment. So there was huge delays introduced. Now, who made those decisions is really shrouded in mystery. And there was almost a religious effect of COVID. People felt that you mentioned COVID and everyone bowed and scraped and said, yes, of course, we, we understand that has to have priority. And we don't see the true consequences for another two or three years. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Carol Sakura. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. It's great to have you on. I've been reading your commentary for the past few years with great interest and uh, filled me with optimisms during some of the darker moments of the COVID pandemic and the lockdown era as well. Um, And you've obviously, listeners will be familiar that you've been writing about things like the cancer backlog that comes from uh, the lockdown period, um, the stalling of certain health treatments over the past few years, and the consequences that might be having on on the general health of the public. Uh, This is an issue you know a lot about. You're a well-esteemed oncologist. You're a professor of medicine. These are things you care about deeply. So I want to dig down into a lot of that stuff with you today. And I want to kick off by just asking you, what's the situation with the missed cancers that uh, people predict were missed during the lockdown moment when people weren't going to the doctors in the way they might traditionally have done. I mean, we hear talk of a cancer bomb. We hear talk of uh, tens of thousands of undiagnosed cancers. What's your reading of the current situation? How bad do you think it is? I think it's really quite bad, Brendan. We don't see the true consequences for another two or three years. If you look at cancer incidents, a thousand people, just over a thousand people a day get cancer. They're told they have cancer. And that is pretty constant. And it doesn't vary from summer to winter, unlike the flu or something like that. Every day of the year, the same numbers. The problem has been that the numbers dropped during COVID. Now, the effects of that drop means they didn't really drop. They just weren't diagnosed. So there was a delay. And now you see them coming through. The problem is that the patients coming through after the delay have a more advanced stage of cancer. And we won't see the consequences of that in terms of survival or poorer survival for another two or three years. So almost certainly the prediction would be that during the pandemic, the survival rates per year were about the same. Uh, But as we go to 2025, 2026, two years' time, we'll see a fall in the survival of cancer patients diagnosed during the pandemic. And that's simply because of the backlog and the delay. And just to explain a bit, Brendan, that if you have cancer and it's caught when it's stage one, that's when it's localized to the organ in which it came from, the four common breast, prostate, lung, and colon, then success rate with current treatment, 90%. You're going to be cured in 90%. So that's really good. Uh, If it's gone to stage three or stage four, it drops to 20%. So delay with cancer is pretty lethal. And we know that. And it's not going to be unexpected when we see that surge through. The quicker we can deal with the backlog, the better the outcome will be. And we're not dealing with it very well at the moment. So in relation to 
how bad it might get. So you say that the um, we won't know what impact this is having on the survival rates for cancer patients uh, for another few years, a couple of years. Um, but the prediction is that there will be a surge in um, people not surviving where they might have previously if they had been diagnosed earlier. Um, how bad do you think it could possibly get? I've seen headlines saying things like... Um, the ticking cancer bomb is going to be worse than COVID in terms of the consequences for human health and human life. Um, I don't want to, you know, play an alternative politics of fear to the politics of fear that uh, we had during COVID, which, which I want to ask you about shortly. But is it's a serious problem, I guess. And, and it, there is a very real potential that we will s- soon see the consequences of essentially switching off the health service for significant numbers of people. That's right. And uh, if you look at the people that died from COVID, the average age was 83. I mean, really very old. That's the normal lifespan for a British female or male, the average 83. So uh, if that was the death from COVID, the average death age from cancer, if it kills you, is much younger. Uh, it's in the, in your 60s. So if you actually do the calculations another way around and look at the life years lost rather than uh, overall survival, the life years lost from cancer is going to be much greater because of what we did during COVID than actually COVID. I mean, it's tragedy. Anybody dies. But, you know, if you have to save a 63 or an 83-year-old person, it's pretty obvious which one you choose because they've got more of a, a life to live. And, and that's something that seemed to get forgotten about. And I kept banging away uh, about it, and people just ignored it. They said, oh, we're switching to COVID. We're taking the, the cancer doctors away from the chemotherapy wards, and we're putting them onto the COVID wards and so on. And, you know, there's got to be a balance. And, of course, it's easy in retrospect because we didn't know how bad COVID or how good, in a sense, COVID would be, that it would come to an end and that the deaths were mainly there were some tragic deaths in young people, including children, but they were fortunately very rare. So um, this might seem like an an obvious question, um, but I did want to get your thoughts on it, just about how this happened. You just touched on it there. You mentioned just there in passing, uh, you know, let's take the cancer doctors away from the chemotherapy units and we'll put them to, to help with COVID patients. So that's an example of how resources were shifted around in the health service in such a way that it was myopically focused on COVID and and to the neglect of other problems and health problems. But more broadly, how did this come about? Because we weren't forbidden by law from, um, I mean, it was very difficult to see a doctor during the COVID period. Lots of people didn't want to. Uh, There were posters saying, you know, basically stay away from the NHS, you know, let let them do their job. Don't bother us unless you really, really have to. So there were those instructions, but but people weren't forbidden from seeing a doctor. There was still the possibility to do that. So just describe in your mind the process through which these cancers were missed. What what happened during that lockdown moment, which meant that people just weren't going to the doctors and getting the advice that they needed? Essentially, everybody was fobbed off by the system. So if you have symptoms that persist, whatever they are, 
coughing up blood, blood in the poo, all these sort of things that people know could be serious. And most people know they should do something about it. They were fobbed off at the level of the receptionist in a general practice, unable to get a GP appointment. If you did get one online, it's not as good as seeing someone that knows you and so on. So people, there was huge delays introduced, even if the GP referred you to hospital. There were delays in getting scans. Uh, there were delays in getting biopsies, endoscopies, where you put tubes into various parts of the body to get a, a sample. There were delays, and some of them were, were justifiable in that, for example, you're running a, a colonoscopy unit where you put uh, tubes into the colon to biopsy colon cancer. Uh, before COVID, you could do 10 in a morning. With COVID, you had to sterilize the room, fumigate it, all the rest of it. So you could only do four in the morning. So suddenly you've got a bottleneck there. But you know, when we realized that we were recovering from COVID, we didn't react fast enough. Now, who made those decisions, as you rightly say, is really shrouded in mystery. And there was almost a religious effect of COVID. People felt that you mentioned COVID and everyone bowed and scraped and said, yes, of course, we, we understand that has to have priority. And at the same time, everything else was forgotten about, not just cancer, but heart disease, strokes, all these other things. And even worse, I think some of the, the softer ends of the NHS, psychic mental health, psychiatric services, and things like children's hearing services, totally forgotten about, just to, to stop them, just don't bother, don't get them to come, shut them down. And who made these decisions? I'd love to know who really made them and um, why they were implemented so uh, irrationally, basically, across the country. Tell us a little bit about the kind of um, correspondence you've had with people who have either been diagnosed with cancer in the conditions we've just talked about or who are worried that they might be and that they may have missed it and and have that general fear of illness um, post-lockdown, post-COVID. Um, you wrote in the Daily Telegraph uh, last year that you do get a lot of emails and contact from people who are really at their wits end over what's happened to them as a consequence of perhaps not being diagnosed as, they, as quickly as they might have been in a more normal period. What kind of feedback have you had? And, and what are people saying about the conditions in which they became ill? They're very worried. And in some cases, with good reason. In other cases, they can be reassured. And I'd love to be able to reassure everybody, but you can't, because there's no doubt that some people suffered because of delay. And delay is a killer with cancer. Uh, how long it has to be before it has a significant effect is debatable. Certainly, two or three months delay has a significant effect on outcome if it's a regular event. The NHS was never good at getting cancer diagnosis fast, even before COVID in 2019. We know that because the data from us and European countries of comparable wealth, France, Germany, Italy, and so on, show that we're much slower to get the diagnosis of cancer. COVID comes along, and in those countries, the other countries, somehow it did have an effect. There was a blip, but it was rectified pretty quickly. Within three months or six months, the COVID had moved on and cancer diagnostic services returned. Here, it was still there. And you could just look at hospital car parks during COVID. They were empty. And, you know, you can't diagnose cancer without going to hospital and having some tests. So if the car park's empty, it means that cancer is not being diagnosed. It's a simple observation. Uh, and I, I was surprised how long it took to get recovery. Do you think there is still... Um 
a reluctance to talk about the cancer crisis and um, the possible upsurge in in uh, deaths from cancer that we might see in the next few years. Do you think there's still a reluctance to talk about that? I mean, we do see headlines. We see reports about the cancer time bomb. I mean, there is obviously concern about it, but it's not really a front and centre issue, I feel. Even in health discussions, it's not really given the prominence that one might expect. Um, That might change, of course, once we start getting um, uh, more evidence that things have gone really badly wrong. Uh, But do you think there's a reluctance to talk about it? Because to do so would mean asking questions about the lockdown period and the decisions that were taken and the action that was uh, taken in in the health service. Do you think there's uh, there's a a failure to have a reckoning with the cancer problem because of what are the questions it might raise about political and social policies that were enforced? I think you're right. There's an unwillingness to actually investigate what's going on. We know that at the moment, for example, the death rate is going up. It's higher than it should be. It's higher than it's been for the last 20 years. So this is very unusual. No one seems interested in government in addressing that. Uh, Why is the death rate? It's probably not cancer, I have to say, at the moment. It's too early for the cancer death. But it's probably heart disease, strokes and so on that were left untreated during the pandemic. So if it's that, and then cancer comes along, I think basically the longer you can wait without asking embarrassing questions, the more chance the people that were responsible have moved on to somewhere else. That's my cynical view of the situation. If you just wait long enough, all the politicians are gone, they they have a three or five year cycle. And uh, a lot of those, the civil servants and the the apparatchiks in the health service responsible for decision making have also moved on, either higher or lower or retired. And uh, uh, it may be a cynical view, but that's usually what happens in these circumstances. So I think it'll take some time to see what's really happening. Hi, it's Brendan here. I want to let you know about a very special event we have coming up soon. On Tuesday, the 29th of August, I will be recording a special live podcast with none other than Michael Schellenberger. Michael will be known to most of you, I have no doubt. He is a brilliant best-selling author and journalist. He was one of the journalists behind the Twitter files, which made waves around the world. And on Zoom at 7pm on Tuesday, the 29th of August, Michael and I will be talking about the censorship industrial complex, global warming hysteria, the problem with wokeness, and much more besides. You really don't want to miss this. It's a free event, but it is exclusive to Spike supporters. So if you're a Spike supporter, go to the online donor hub now and claim your free ticket for this live podcast recording. If you're not a Spike supporter, what are you waiting for? This is the perfect time to sign up. You'll be able to grab your ticket for this live podcast, and you'll also get access to lots of other perks as well, like ad-free reading, access to our comment section, and tickets for other free events too. For as little as £5 a month, you'll get access to all of that as a Spike supporter. So sign up today, go to spike-online.com slash supporters. That's spike-online.com slash supporters. I hope to see you on the 29th. So um, let's go back to the pandemic 2020, 2021. Um, I want to ask you not only about the what was happening in the health service or not happening in the health service at that time. I also want to ask you what was happening in the world outside, um, in the world of politics and public discussion and media discussion 
But you said something very interesting recently in the Telegraph where you said you were called a killer for raising questions about, um, well, particularly about the possible delay of cancer diagnoses. Um, it seems now that you've been proven right. But I remember the discussion around you and other people who were not completely on board with the lockdown and were sceptical about the way in, w- in which it was enforced. Um, the discussion about people like you was extraordinary. You were often damned as granny killers. You had blood on your hands. In fact, I wrote a piece for Spite in defense of Carol Sakura was the headline, <laughs> um, just saying, look, we need to have a free, open discussion about a policy as unusual as this one we're all currently living through. Um what was it like back then? Because you became a, a fairly well-known face on the news talking about uh, COVID, talking about lockdown, um, trying to present people with a more positive message about how this pandemic might turn out. And you were demonised in certain sections of the media. What was that like? How did it feel to have those kind of um, attacks made on you simply for raising questions? Well, I'm very grateful for your article, Brendan, about the granny killer episode, because you're right, it's pretty uncomfortable to be called that by people that should know better. It was like a, a religious war when you know, they used to burn witches, they used to burn heretics and so on. And I was sort of a heretic to the common policy. And I remember I was taken off uh, lectures at universities, a routine recorded and put on YouTube for the students to watch again if they want to. And it was t- one of my lectures was taken down because it obviously triggered something in the computer that had COVID and cancer. It was a lecture on cancer, nothing to do with COVID. I did talk about the pandemic. And it was taken off Facebook for 24 hours. It was put back on, in all fairness. But, you know, it was just a ridiculous censorship. And I think that was the problem at the time. You weren't allowed to express a different view. So there were several people that were expressing different views, including Carl Hennigan, a friend of mine at Oxford, professor of uh, general practice there, evidence-based medicine. And he had the same treatment. It was as though any view that dis- they were dissident from the mainstream were dangerous and would cause more damage and therefore should be suppressed. And, uh, and I put in a, a freedom for information to see if I was on the, the list of the, 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 the group that looked for dissidents out there. Now, there was a group, there's psychological warfare, try and flatten them, cancel them, get them out of the equation so their opinions don't matter. I mean, having said all that, the thing that the NHS did brilliantly, and I, 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 if it can do this, it can do anything, including cancer, was the vaccine program. Uh, not just the actual getting the needle into people, but the whole logistics of it, the stuff on my smartphone that tells me exactly the batch number of vaccines I've had, all that stuff. It was brilliant. And, uh, you know, it cost a lot of money. uh, And you can say, was it justified? Well, that's another argument. But it can do fantastic things. It could do the same for the cancer backlog if you put the same amount of effort into it. But will they? Is it politically going to happen? I don't think it will. That's my problem with it. But you're right, it was an uncomfortable period. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I thought, I've long thought that the disparity between the disappearance of the health service for many people during the pandemic, and then the extraordinary campaign to get people vaccinated and to make sure that we all knew when we'd been vaccinated, what we had received, where it had come from. I thought it was such a good snapshot of a health service failing and then a health service succeeding. And I think applying a similar logic to cancer is probably the right way to go now. Um, I, I want to ask you uh, about the politics of fear 
that was at play in a lot of this. And I know you've commented on this before, particularly if one casts one's mind back to those daily press briefings. Uh, For the first time in my life, in March and April 2020, I stopped watching the news. I've always watched the news. I am a, a news hound. I follow things very closely. But I had to stop watching because it just became this depressing daily lecture about who was dying, how many people had died, what you need to do next, don't do this, don't do that. It was incredibly dispiriting. And there was nothing in those um, daily press briefings, which was very notable, uh, about other problems that weren't COVID. So the health consequences or the social consequences of the lockdown we were living through, that was uh, never openly discussed with the public. What did you make, as someone who's devoted your whole life to uh, attending to health and being concerned about individual health and public health, what did you make of those daily press briefings and and the impact they were likely having on the public? It was a powerful use of uh, psychology. I mean, really very powerful use of skillful techniques for people. Um, You know, uh, whether people have a high IQ or a low IQ, it doesn't matter. They were... you were perceiving there was a problem here that was really worthy of your greatest attention. And, you know, you could walk into a a railway station and be shouted at if your mask was below your nose uh, in a way that, you know, it's just unbelievable that this could happen in Britain. And I remember the other vivid uh, image of Piccadilly Circus with the Protect the NHS advert with someone with a mask on looking as though they were dying of COVID. Uh, And protecting the NHS was going to protect this person it was very clever psychology that by protecting the NHS, this lady would live. If you didn't protect the NHS by going with your uh, your little symptom that was of no importance to anybody else, then this lady might die. So that was the sort of the message. And indeed, we know that there was a psychops unit, an operational psychology unit, dedicated to actually switch people's minds enough. Therefore, people like me and others that were a bit more cynical and say, look, we've got to keep the system going for other diseases, we're just sidelined, just keep keep them off the the mainstream media. And indeed, that happened. I I ended up on GB News and Talk TV, and uh, the BBC stopped talking to me. And uh, the BBC were completely behind the the establishment. It was was frightening to see. It was like a, it was almost like a Russian media station, you know, exactly the same when it came to COVID. There was no diversity of opinion, there were no divergent views. And the other stations were less frightening, but uh, they just followed in the same footsteps. In relation to that kind of psychological manipulation or, or the use of fear to try and instill a certain message in the public and try to direct behaviour in a certain direction, um, isn't that counterproductive in the long term, and maybe even in the medium term. I mean, in the short term, you could say it has uh, consequences that the government desired at the time, in the sense that people were more likely to stay at home, they didn't mingle, they didn't mix, they didn't do the things that they were told not to do, uh, partly because they had fear had been utilised to tell them that the consequences would be so severe if they did any of these things. But in the medium term and the longer term, isn't it likely to create a more atomized culture and maybe to have fearful consequences that last longer than the government would wish? I mean, I know that there were discussions within the government's uh, COVID circles about how to get people back out of the house, how to encourage them to go back to work. Maybe we'd scared them a little bit too much. 
isn't that there's the danger that it will intensify a general divided culture an atomized culture and a cynical culture towards those who rule over us who seem more intent on uh, panicking us than galvanizing us in a democratic discussion about what we should do in a time of crisis yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, if you if you look at what happened afterwards, uh, you know, you see uh, older people found it difficult to get back to normal, and you still see it. Some older people are still wearing masks out there, uh, and you, you said the masks have been proven not to be effective against respiratory viruses. Not the masks they're wearing. If you want to wear the full Ebola gear, maybe. But uh, I, I'd love to do that on the train to work. You know, just put the, the Ebola outfit on. But um, there's no doubt that it's lasting longer in certain people. It's not just age, it's also personality types have been more affected by it. They've been more frightened, basically. And uh, it's difficult to get them out of it. Uh, and the workforce, I mean, what we have learned with it, of course, is you can work quite effectively with dual working at home and uh, at work, uh, even for something like medicine. I mean, I do a lot of consultations online now that I've never did before. And uh, that's triggered me to do it. So maybe some good has come of it. But it's uh, even the General Medical Council strike doctors off online now. So, <laughs> so why not? Hopefully they won't do me. But uh, uh, it's uh, th- there's no doubt people have adapted to a new way of working and found that comfortable. But you're right. Getting rid of the fear is as difficult as is more difficult than actually getting people to be afraid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And um I think governments need to be very careful when they use such cynical methods. And I also just think it's always preferable to treat people as adults and have a serious conversation with them rather than scaring them like telling a child a ghost story, which is very paternalistic and and, um, self-defeating. You mentioned they're working from home. And and as you say, lots of people are now doing a bit of both. They're working from home, they're going to the office. um, And that will probably be one of the longer lasting consequences of the pandemic. And in some instances, it's not a bad thing. I think in some cases, it is a bad thing if half of the civil service, for example, is working from home rather than engaging in serious government business. That can be a problem. But I did want to ask you about the uneven impact of lockdown policies. Um, Now, there was a universal impact in terms of a loss of civil liberty, which was pretty unprecedented in modern times. But there was an uneven impact as well, wasn't there? Because of course, lots of people can't work from home. They have to um, go to building sites or uh, deliver things, empty dustbins. And lots of those people carried on working. And others were, of course, furloughed because they were no longer required in society. And I think lockdown was probably harder for those sections of society than it was for, I guess, the middle classes who might be more able to work from home. So do you think there was an uneven impact too, which was very rarely discussed, I felt, in some of the coverage? It was totally uneven. I think the worst thing uh, were for children. Uh, schools were closed. Children had to work from home. It's People that were poor didn't have computers. There'd be three kids working from a phone that was owned by mum, and they'd be in some high-rise block of flats, unable to go out with this phone, trying to do their homework. Completely unfair. Okay, kids in affluent areas had their own iPads, all the rest of it. There's no problem. But uh, it was very unequal. And we're going to see the effects of that for many years. In other words, the performance of people from poorer backgrounds is going to be poorer over the next five years than from those from affluent backgrounds because of it. So uh, whether we needed to close schools again, who knows? It, 
young children on the whole are not a, a problem with COVID. Very few young children have serious infections. It's a problem of older people, vulnerable people with other medical complications. So my stance was protect those, tell them to isolate for their own safety and leave everyone else to go about their business. And as you say, a lot of jobs you can't actually do from home. You have to physically be there. So uh, going beyond um, the cancer question and even the physical health question, I wanted to ask you about some of the other likely impacts of lockdown. There was a recent report about lockdown impacting negatively on the emotional development of half of children, uh, which is an, a huge number of children. We know that a very significant number of children are still missing from schools. They haven't really got back into the system after COVID. Um in, in the past, something like that would have been treated as a very, very serious problem. If significant numbers of children are not going to school, that's a social problem that requires a lot of attention and discussion. But we haven't really seen that. Uh, so what do you think some of the other impacts of um, the lockdown moment might be, not only on physical health, but I guess on social health, on, on the well-being of society more broadly, particularly in relation to kids and education and, and those kinds of issues? I mean, it's the kids that suffered most from that. I mean, the older people that had to isolate in care homes, it's sad, but they're, they're, a lot of people in care homes never go out of them. So that that's fine. But I think for children, they're part of their emotional development. And those that come from poorer backgrounds have less uh, space to play in their gardens, for example, and less books, less computers, less uh, stimulus outside the school environment, and some even less food. I mean, school free school meals are part of the, the, the staple diet of quite a surprising number of people in the UK for children. So all the, the, their emotional development also suffered because they didn't meet friends, they didn't uh, meet their uh, peers in, in school. So I think the decision to do that who made these decisions and and why and what evidence were they using? Uh, and if you look at Sweden, it used the same evidence and came to a different conclusion. And the results are actually better in Sweden than they are here in terms of deaths from COVID. So however you assess it, some bad decisions were made. Now, the Hallett Inquiry, which is ongoing, uh, is not really asking the right questions. It just strikes me as it's going to produce whitewash to say, well, we didn't know what we know now then. So people like Sikora talking like this, oh, it's easy for you now because you can look back. And I said, well, it was pretty obvious at the time in reality for most people. And uh, Britain hasn't done well out of COVID compared to some other countries. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology, and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. So what's your reading on not necessarily who made the decisions? I mean, we have a sense of who made the decisions and, and who enforced them, and we, we know who the faces were of the... Um, 
the daily uh, press conferences and so on. And we know we know who was in power. But what's your reading of why the decision to lock down was taken? Because, um, I mean, the inquiry, as you say, is ongoing. There's still discussion about whether it was the right thing to do in 2020, uh, even if it may have been wrong to do it subsequently in different lockdowns. There's all those discussions that will take place, I'm sure, for many years. But what's your reading on, on why this decision was taken? Do you think there was a global domino effect? Because lockdown did seem to sweep around the world in an extraordinary way, country after country. Um, do you think there was a kind of a, a, a general sense amongst establishments across the world, I guess, that we had better act or else we're going to be held responsible for a potential disaster? Was it a fearful, rash response? What's your reading on, on why that was done? I think it was an inflammatory response. Once one country does something, it's difficult for other countries not to follow, as you suggest. The World Health Organization, who I've worked for for two years and been an advisor for many years, uh, is, a, is relatively weak in handling things. It's very political. It doesn't like to do things to offend its major subscribers, which is the United States and China. Uh, and so it tries to steer a, a political middle ground. And instead of being authoritative, they came up with sort of flimsy advice about border controls, for example. They started off saying no need for any border controls, no need to screen people. And then suddenly they changed their advice halfway through. Well, uh, you know, both can't be right. So uh, what evidence were they basing it on? I think countries generally didn't know what to do. Politics Politicians, as we could see, had no idea. Most of them are arts graduates, or they do philosophy at Oxford, philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford, and uh, they have no idea what's going on here. And uh, I, I think they were misled by some of the civil servants about it, and uh, we ended up with a disaster here. And uh, compared to other countries, where somehow they handled it better. The other thing to say, Brendan, is our health service operates at full capacity before the pandemic in 2019. The French system has spare capacity comparatively. So if you look at France and compare it to Britain, France was able to ride through COVID health-wise, in a, including cancer, in a better way than we have, and is still doing so. Uh, here we are coming to the end of 2023. Well, it feels like winter out there today. Uh, and, you know, France is way ahead, just back to normal with cancer. Whereas here, we've still got people queuing up to get biopsies and CT scans and MR scans and so on that wouldn't be in another country. Yeah, that, that is extraordinary. And that does deserve serious consideration and serious discussion. Um, you mentioned there in passing China, and I did want to ask you, about China. We know that China is the origins of um, COVID-19. One thing that really struck me was a comment made by Neil Ferguson, who of course was the Imperial College modeler for the government, who provided the government with models of what would happen in various different scenarios uh, with this pandemic. Um, he made a comment, I think at the end of 2020, where he said that we, as in he and his fellow experts, we never thought that we could get away with what they were doing in China. Um, and then we saw that Italy also enforced lockdown, and then we thought maybe we could. Um, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that a, a tactic that was embraced in China, which we all recognise to be an undemocratic authoritarian country, was then so swiftly embraced by countries in the West that very often um, advertise their commitment to freedom, their commitment to choice, their commitment to uh, the rights of, of ordinary people. Um, 
how do you explain the the swiftness of that turn against civil liberty not only in the government but i guess in the media establishment as well and and amongst large sections of the public who seem to think well freedom is a negotiable commodity it can be pushed to one side in a moment of crisis so so let's do it do you think that told us a broader story about the times we live in I think it does. And I think, you know, the China reaction was sort of predictable because they can control populations, just like Russia can now about the war in Ukraine and how they propaganda from their side about it to their population. Here, the surprise was it happened so quickly before anyone could say, well, hang on a minute, there's no need for this. Uh, why don't we adopt a Swedish model? But we didn't. We just went straight into it all across Europe. And then, of course, the ridiculousness of the travel arrangements. I, I traveled completely abroad during COVID for, for work reasons. And there was always a way to do it, but it was it just got increasingly complicated and stupid what you had to have. The documents would change by the day. Even the airlines couldn't keep up with it uh, when they went back to, to, to it. Uh, they had. I remember British Airways having little paper things saying, which country are you going to? Oh, this is what we've got. Handwritten. No, you just fill the form in by hand what documents you've got to prove you haven't got COVID and, and so on. And then the, remember the red countries and the hotels at Heathrow. I mean, it was just, uh, it was, it was it was all made up on the hoof, the whole thing, and there was no logic to the, the you know. And uh, people would travel, spend two weeks in a nice Greek island, which was a, 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 you could then come back to the UK instead of spending two weeks in one of those dreadful hotels on the north perimeter of Heathrow. It was a, a ridiculous times. Yeah, and that's another example of the uneven impact as well, because um, some people's lives were ruined by the red country system and the hotel forced quarantine system because you know the idea in the media is that it was only wealthy greedy people who were flying off on holiday but of course we have um african origin people in the uk pakistani origin people who were flying off to funerals to visit sick relatives and literally spending their whole life savings on having to go into one of these quarantine hotels when they came back it really was an extraordinary state of affairs um, I just want to, just moving, looking forward, I guess, to what might come next. Um, I, I, we've mentioned the inquiry, which is ongoing. Um, there is now some media coverage of the impacts of lockdown in terms of children's emotional development, the cancer time bomb, and a few other issues that people are now becoming more aware of. And it does increasingly feel like lockdown is now a historical artifact. We seem kind of slightly distant from it. I think most people are relieved it's over and probably don't want to think about it too much, but it is now like a a piece of history. Do you think we will have a genuine reckoning with lockdown, for example, through the inquiry, or do you think there are too many vested interests in justifying it as a policy, which means that it's unlikely we'll have a really robust, honest interrogation of whether it was the right thing to do? It's an interesting question. I mean, the only rationale for spending millions on the inquiry is costing us millions of taxpayers' money, uh, mainly going to lawyers, is what would happen if something comes along in the future? How will it modify our behaviour? Can we learn the lessons of COVID for something else? Not COVID, something totally different. And that could be useful. And at what level? I think no politician is going to trigger another lockdown without very good evidence. I think that's the lesson we've got to get to. Uh, And uh, how we get there, I just don't know. 
I think uh, it's not just the lockdown, but shutting down healthcare for anything other than the infection, whatever it's going to be. Uh, I think that was the biggest justification for getting a proper plan for the future. Uh, whether we'll get there, I'm not totally confident out of this. Uh, but I think people are going to be much more reluctant for any freedom infringement in the future. By all means, personal responsibility. If you feel you want to shut yourself away for a, a year, that's your decision. We'll provide all the tools to let you do that. Uh, but other than that, I think is we can't shut society down again. That actually leads me on to, to what was going to be my next question, which is um, to ask you for your expert thoughts on what should happen if there is another pandemic. I mean, because that's another thing that we're hearing in the media quite a lot now. It is starting to scare me a little bit, I must say. The next pandemic, the coming pandemic, it will be even worse. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that kind of discussion. Um, but imagine uh, a COVID-19 style pandemic comes to the UK. We don't have a, imagine it's one that we don't have a vaccine for. We don't have many much treatment for. Um, we maybe work out quite soon early on that it impacts more on elderly people than younger people. What would you, Dr. Sakura? what would you propose that the country should do in response to that? Would you be off the Great Barrington Declaration view that we should have more forms of focused protection or, as you've just said, emphasise personal responsibility rather than forcing people to adhere to certain rules and guidelines? What would your advice be to, to the government about how to approach uh, the next pandemic? So my advice to the government would be to educate people to make their own decision about what to do. And if they feel frightened, by all means, wear masks, keep isolated, don't do things, make sure that workplaces can carry on without people turning up where possible. You might have to close public events. You might have to close restaurants, pubs, and all the rest of it. Uh, but do it for the shortest time possible until you get control. And uh, depending on the route of spread depend, will depend how, if it's a respiratory like uh, COVID was, then you do have to do some closures. But you don't need to stop people walking in the park, taking their dogs out, uh, uh, going outside. And that was a great mistake because the outside is great. It's, it's it cooped up in, a, in an aeroplane is probably the worst place to be or a cruise ship is the worst place to be for, for these viruses. So getting people out is great. Uh, and uh, letting people have personal responsibility. You make the decision. We'll give you the data. You make the decision. Okay. Uh, Dr. Sakura, my final question for you is about your new role. I mean, we know that you have been a professor of medicine. You were an, an advisor to the World Health Organization, as you said. Um, you're a very well-known oncologist. Did you ever think you would end up with a career as a dissident voice, as a heretic, <laughs> as someone slightly on the edge of acceptable thinking? Um and have you embraced that now? Do you think it's in a climate in which speech and ideas are sometimes restricted, supposedly for the greater good, have you embraced the idea that actually sometimes it's worth speaking out and saying what you think to be right and true? I've come off lightly, Brendan. I've, I've not been put in prison like some people do, or burnt at the stake. You know, These are other options for heretics. I've always been a bit of a heretic, but this really got my... Uh, it got to be that this was happening. And I'm still very cross that this happened for, for the cancer patients that have lost out in it. I think 
the future, uh, there's always going to be groups that try and take over and uh, uh, take over the intellectual thought. And, you know, whether it's modelers like uh, Ferguson that you mentioned uh, or other people that have some vested interest in going to some extreme way, politicians do this in other countries. They do it here, but they're less effective in Britain. I, I think it's really important that uh, we, we try and get the truth out there and leave people to judge the situation for themselves and not use the police in the way they were used uh, two years ago, which was ridiculous, really. Carol Sakura, thank you very much. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.